Hey, Classical Stuff listeners, Thomas here. Hey, quick heads up before today's episode. It's a little bit different than normal. Usually, as you know, it's the three of us sitting around talking about uh, a work or an idea or a door sometimes. Um, But this week we have the pleasure of uh, talking with Josh Gibbs as a kind of follow-up to our discussion last week about his newest essay, So Your Parents Are Thinking of Sending You to a Classical Christian School. And when I say we, it's actually me. I got to sit down with Josh. It was a great conversation. You'll get to listen to it as soon as I'm done rambling with this introduction. Um, I wanted to give a brief introduction. Josh Gibbs is a teacher, author, speaker, and deep thinker on all things classical. If you are looking to be introduced to some of his ideas, you can listen to our previous episodes on how to be unlucky, something they will not forget, or the episode titled In Defense of Christmas, which is about a a book of – essays that Josh wrote about Christmas. Um, if you, We talk about some of these things at the end of the episode, but if you are interested in following Josh Gibbs online, the best place to connect with him is gibbsclassical.com. I'll say again, gibbsclassical.com. That's where you can find the newest essay. That's where you can see just what he's working on, and you can sign up for his mailing list and get uh, noti- notified when he puts out new things, which is a thing that you should do. Also, we talk about this at the end of the episode, but I very clearly got the dates wrong. Um, Josh is hosting a conference this summer. It is the aptly named Gibbs Classical Online Summer Conference. If you are a teacher or administrator or parent or student or anyone who is interested at all in classical education, uh, you should consider signing up for this conference. You can do that, of course, at gibbsclassical.com. The reason I'm telling you this particularly right now, is that the early bird pricing ends on March 31st, which is this Thursday, if you're listening to this on the Tuesday when it comes out. So you should go to Gibbs Classical and sign up for that. If you are listening after, if you're listening to this after March 31st, then you can still go and sign up. It'll just be a little bit more, but you should, you should definitely go check that out. If you're interested in this podcast, if you're interested in any of the episodes where we've talked about Gibbs's work, then you should go look into this conference. All right. Next week, we'll be back to our regular three guys sitting around a table talking about a thing uh, episodes, but I hope you will enjoy this week's episode. It's a little bit of a departure. I thought it was a great conversation and I'm so thankful that Josh took the time. So I hope you enjoy this episode. and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. Now, longtime listeners will know that I'm normally joined by Mr. A.J. Hannenberg and Mr. Graham Donaldson, but today we have a special guest. So we recently covered a new essay from writer Josh Gibbs, and Josh Gibbs has graciously agreed to come on the podcast to talk a little bit about his background and that pamphlet uh, from a few weeks ago. So hello, Mr. Josh Gibbs. Welcome to Classical Stuff. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a, ple- it's a pleasure to have you here. So we have covered a number of your works on the podcast before. We've talked about uh, how to be unlucky. Um, and uh, again, so your parents want to send you to a classical Christian school, which we'll talk about later. Um, but something we haven't really covered on the podcast is your um, how you got to classical education. You talk about it in How to Be Unlucky, but I was hoping, can you walk us from kind of the late 90s, uh, a 
you have described yourself as something of a slacker in high school to uh, coming to work in classical education. Yeah, that's right. So in the mid-90s, my parents moved to Moscow, Idaho, where I attended Logos School. And that was after a couple of years of homeschooling, and it wasn't working out great. And Doug Wilson came to a nearby Presbyterian church where we lived in Virginia and gave a talk on classical education. My parents were um, intrigued. We went and took a look at Moscow and decided that this was a thing we were going to pursue. And so I think it was 1995 that I started attending Logos, and that was my freshman year. And uh, I was always very good about attending school, not very good to attending to my teachers. <laughs> I loved going to school. Uh, I loved spending time with my friends. The primary value of school was inside jokes with friends, um, gossip with friends, flirting with girls. That was primarily what school was good for. Yes. Um, and, and so I, uh, my freshman year, I had perfect attendance at school. I didn't want to miss a day. Uh, if I missed a day, something very important might happen to my friends. Nothing's going to happen during a lecture that can't be made up for. But um, and so I was I was more or less, all, you know, like this all throughout high school. Um, I did have one great love in high school, uh, one great academic love, I should say. And that was mock trial. Hmm. Um, I did mock trial in high school. I loved it. Um, and I gained a lot from it. I think a lot of the. Um, the best things I got out of high school, I, I got out of mock trial. Uh, and that's nothing against my teachers. It's, it's less to do with what I was offered, more to do with what I received. But I received a lot of mock trial. Um, and then I dropped out of college a handful of times. It took me 10 years to graduate with a bachelor's degree from the University of Idaho. Uh, it probably should have taken me about nine months to graduate from that college. <laughs> um, it took 10 years, and I was already in my, my first teaching job. Um, I married in 2006 and I don't think I really started getting my life together, uh, until about maybe a year before I got married. Got it. And I married this very bookish girl that I fell in love with in high school, but she shut me down. And, uh, after I married, I became more intrigued by a quiet life, by a stay at home sort of life. And that was sort of the beginning of my life my interest in um, academic and, and intellectual things. Yeah, eventually we'll get into more definitions around classical education. But for your personal growth, how much of you ending up in the classical world has to do with education and how much of it is marriage and children and um, more personal things? Well, uh, I think that my, my teachers were always uh, very patient people. And uh, I had very good teachers in high school many of whom were willing to play the long game. And, and playing the long game means being willing to throw your pearls before swine and sure. hope that the swine turn into people and pick up the pearls like 10 years later. So that was often the way I think my teachers thought of me, which isn't entirely fair. This is swine. And, and I think I went back and picked up a few pearls right. year by year by year. And, yes. and I realized... Um, you know, later on that a lot of what I'd been taught in high school was extremely valuable. Uh, and there were, you know, a number of teachings from logic teachers and history teachers and theology teachers that stood out to me and began meaning more to me in memory um, as the years passed. So uh, I don't, I don't want to say it's entirely classical or it's entire, you know, 
Right. The reason why I'm in classical education isn't entirely because I'm married, although I think that marriage was the catalyst for beginning to care about what I had heard back in high school. No, that makes a lot of sense. And that's, I, I, I think you're giving lots of hope both to parents who might have students that are quite not on that academic track, but then also I think of the students that come back five years later, you think they have not, they're not interested in anything you say, and right. you just never know the second time they pick up a book that you taught or the second time they've thought of some quote you said, and that's what turns something around for them. There's just no way to know yeah. until five years later, right? Absolutely true. Yeah. Absolutely. So I've always wondered this, and in, in old versions of your bio, you would list that both of your children have seven names. What are the rest yeah, of us miss, what, what are the rest of us missing out on by not giving our children seven names? Um, well, I forget. I forget if I've ever explained why I gave my kids seven names, or my wife and I gave my kids seven. Names. Yes, of course. So, so back when I was uh, in high school, my father had this. Maybe you've seen this before. If you if you shopped at a Christian gift store in the 1980s or 1990s, you're probably familiar with a number of sort of standard issue evangelical posters yes. that you might put on the on the wall of a study. And my father had this poster that was all of the names and euphemisms for God in the, in the Bible. And, and it's still sold to this day. And, and so this is like a long list, like Prince of Peace, um, uh, you know, Lamb, Rock, like, like every single thing, every name um, and, and metaphorical description of God. And, he, and I passed this poster every day. Uh, coming in and out of my room because I had to pass through a study to get to my room. And I was always sort of taken back by the fact that God had all of these names. And I think I came to believe that some of the richness of the experience of God had to do with the fact that he gave us all these different ways of thinking about him, sure. that he was both a prince and a king, uh, that he was this very strong thing, this lion, but he was also this presented himself as a lamb. And so when it came time to name my kids, I thought my children will have a richer personality if I give them all of these different names to inhabit. Okay. And so the names weren't a random assemblage. There is this sort of musical way of reciting all the names of the syllables shake out like a bit like syllables and lines of poetry. Uh, but my wife and I spent you know nine months putting these names together meticulously and sort of including all these things in the names, almost like a, the names are sort of like keepsake, yeah. sort of like uh, time capsules or, or, or like boxes of favorite things. Yeah. Um, like all my favorite stuff is in my kids' names. Wow. So then are the, is that something that will then come up? So when I think of the few times I've used my, my two children's full name is like if they're in trouble, but right. this sounds like something else of more like a reminder of Again, I don't know what – I imagine like the virtues would be included among those seven names or something like that. Like is it more a reminder of who they could be or I guess how, how are those seven names used then? Yeah, I would, I would say that it's sort of that um, – uh, that the names both are real and are potential realities to inhabit. Um, so, so my older child is Camilla Calliope, Eve Marie Francis, Jerusalem Jubilee Gibbs. And my younger is Beatrice Babbitt, Cassia Celeste Theodore, Magnolia Gibbs. Uh, and all of those names are important to my wife and I. And one, yeah. some of them are family names. Some of them are theological concepts I think are very important. Uh, there are also names of fictitious characters that I've written in short stories that also appear in their names. Uh, there are fictional characters, movies that are referenced in their names. Um, so, so uh, you know, the, the names don't feel all that 
dated to me now because I, I tried to include things that I've been interested in for a long time sure. uh, in their names. But but yeah, I would say that they are um, they are sort of realities to enter into as opposed to thinking of them as accomplishments. Yeah, they're sort of offers. You could be this person. Yeah. So then if your background was with logos, was, were you Presbyterian growing up? Uh, I was all sorts of things growing up. My father was in the military. We moved around a lot. And so uh, I have been a member of more Christian denominations than, uh, honestly, than I can name. I mean, I've attended Southern Baptist Church, uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, Reformed Churches, CREC Churches, uh, non-denominational Bible Churches. Um, I really saw the world before I turned 15. Was the Eastern Orthodox Church one of those churches you were a part of early on? It was not. That was um, that. Was, I couldn't have told you what the Orthodox Church was before I was twenty six, probably. Is that when you converted to the Eastern Orthodox Church? Uh, it was. I think I was twenty nine. Okay. I think it was about three years later. <laughs> Can you talk through that? I'm, I'm curious, just of what brought you to that. How much of that is? kind of starting with an interesting ancient things and then finding a, um, a denomination that lines up with that, um, or if there's more to it? It was, uh, it was not, it wasn't an interest in old things or even an interest in traditional things. I think the interest in tradition has grown out of being Orthodox, whereas hmm. the attraction to Orthodoxy was something entirely different up front. Um, uh, the attraction to Orthodoxy had a lot to do with the fact that I was brought up to be critical of what I heard in church. So my parents were a part of a non-Trinitarian Christian cult oh, wow. uh, for the first nine years of my life called the Way Ministry. Well, I don't um, know anything about them. Wow. Found, uh, founded, I think, in the late 60s, 70s. Okay. The founder was Paul Werewolf. Uh, you can look him up. He's still, yeah. uh, he died a long time ago, but... Um, uh, the most famous work by Paul Werewell is called Jesus Christ is not God, uh, oh. rather unambiguous, upfront, forthright sort of title. <laughs> really upfront with that. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so it was, it was an absolutely bizarre amalgam of like faith healing and biblocentrism yeah. and heresy and Gnosticism, like all kind of collapse in the same yeah. space. So uh, my parents got burned very badly by this cult and so they never really trusted any church after they got out, which is why we went to so many different churches. Yeah. And so really from the point that they got out, I was raised to constantly question what I heard the man at the front of the names say every Sunday. Right. And really by the time I was like 17 or 18, even at a pretty young age, I realized that this was a really, uh, this was not a great way to go to church. This is right. not. Um, and so I, I think a lot of my thoughts on authority, especially the authority of tradition, is a is a bit uh, an attempt to correct this way over analytical, highly skeptical, anti-authoritarian, iconoclastic sort of upbringing that I had, where you know, like on the way home from church, we would all you know just criticize what happened and what we had seen. Uh, and my knowledge that like this was not an effective way to raise children, and sure. I didn't want to raise my children that way. And that I needed a church for them where uh, the authority of the church was not in question right. and a sort of church that didn't encourage um, 
like analytical thinking on Sunday. Like, like there was more to life than analytical thinking. Like it's not bad, but it's not the whole story. Um, Not too long ago, Graham did an episode on Carl Truman's rise and triumph of the modern self, which is, which is a great book. But the place like my question at the end was, if we're not centering this decision-making in individuals, I don't know what other thing can make those decisions. So take your example of, you know, criticizing the pastor or priest up front every Sunday is a bad way to live, but it's right. also bad to imagine if the next church you walked into was the same one you were in for the first nine years, you shouldn't uncritically accept that. Sure. Do you do you have some thought on how, is it that you found the Orthodox Church and that is a good thing to submit to, therefore you can trust them? Or is there some other way of making that decision of what is worth trusting? Yeah, I think, well, to describe my own experience, uh, the first time I, I, I went to an Orthodox church, I I think that um, the first Orthodox service that I, that I attended was not a divine liturgy on a Sunday morning. It was this epically long Wednesday evening service in the middle of Lent. Huh. And it went on for, you know, it went on for hours. And, uh, I had this unique experience when I was walking out of that service. And I mean, I should say, uh, I knew very little about orthodoxy walking into that service. I knew that I had some friends who were interested in it. Um, But I think I had read, um, I think I had read a half a dozen articles from David Bentley Hart's Friday First Things column. And that was it. (laughs) And I walked into this, uh, you know, I walked into this orthodox church and my feeling when it was over was finally I have found something that doesn't need me. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and I spoke with a friend about what I had seen, but all of my criticisms felt uh, sort of senseless, like a bit like criticizing the sun. <laughs> like, what, what point is there in criticizing the sun? Like the sun doesn't need you. Right. You need it. It's been around for a long time. It's going to keep doing its thing. Um, and, and the first time I came out of an Orthodox church, I was like, okay, I can, I can share my thoughts about what I saw in the same way I can share my thoughts about the sun, but it's not like the sun doesn't depend on me. It doesn't need me. This is more about my response to it than its need of me. And so that doesn't entirely answer your question. Um, but I think it's, it's important to ask yourself, what exactly is an institution asking of me and what exactly are they promising in return? Uh, what sort of, um, and what sort of guarantees, what sort of, what sort of accomplishments can they point to that lend some sort of credibility about the claims that they're making about themselves? Um, and, and it was also true that the claims that the Orthodox Church made about itself were far bigger and grander than any claims I'd ever heard any other church make. Yeah. And yet there was absolutely no pressure to join it. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, I would, I would go to these, these, these uh, inquirers and catechumens class on, yeah. um, on Wednesday night. And like, there was no high pressure sales. It wasn't like, you've got to do this. You've got to do this soon. You've got to do it now. Uh, instead, the approach was, um, you need to be fully convinced in your own mind or as fully convinced as you're going to get that you want to make a commitment to this. And remember that if you walk away before you make a commitment, that's fine. That's fine. Like, right? if, you, if you don't make a commitment to us, um, your life might be a whole lot easier. Uh, and it, it's a little bit like what the angel tells Dante when he's, when he's approaching the gates of purgatory. purgatory. What do you want? Right. Beware, you may regret coming here. Right. Uh, which is not the high pressure 
you know, the high pressure sale. Um, and I was moved and, and I found it very um, persuasive that the church was more or less indifferent to me and at the same time cared about me. It was this yeah. weird paradox. Like they cared about me, but they, did, they weren't dying to have me there. It, yeah, it might have been because they didn't need you there that they could care about you. It uh, Agreed. Because they can only <laughs> yes. care about you coming for the right reasons if you don't have to join, right? It, uh, sure. I think I'm not Catholic, but I think of my image of like a, a, a Catholic mass every morning where you have the three people who show up. That mass is going to be there every day, no matter what, no matter how right. many people show up to it. And it's, it's not a numbers game primarily. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this, uh, thank you for that. Let's, uh, really what I, I'm hoping for is for you to answer a bunch of disagreements we've had per, going on like 200 episodes or so. So this this next section, I'm looking for um, a definition around classical education. Um, in your newest pamphlet, you uh, it, it fits perfectly for when a parent is totally bought into classical education, but their their child is not sure about it. So I just wanted to do some of the kind of the work to get there of defining what is classical education. So I'll push and ask questions as we go, but let's just, at a high level, what is classical education? Um, I, I'm going to go with um, my favorite elevator pitch, which is um, uh, there is an illiteracy of the soul which no diploma can cure. Classical education is just the education that emerges around this belief. Um, that's Nicholas Gomez Tadila. Um, a classical education is about learning to love what deserves to be loved. Yeah. It's about learning to take pleasure in transcendent and eternal things. It's about learning to despair of merely eminent things. Uh, a classical education is... Um, a classical education is a way of repenting for a very long time and very slowly with other people and books. Um, the work of, and this is not original, this is just borrowing from Andrew Kern here. Uh, classical education is remedial. It's remedial for the soul. It's about learning to repent in a systematic sort of way uh, of your ignorance, much of which is learned, some of which is inherited. Um, a classical education is about the good life. It's about a life that is sustainably good and not merely pleasant for the, for the short run. Um, a classical education is about um, the reconciliation of the human and the divine. Uh, it plays a small, I would say non-sacramental role in the apotheosis of the human person. It's about divinization. It's not... It's not accomplishing what the Lord's Supper is doing, but it's not working against it either. Um, I think that it's, uh, I think in the restoration of Christian culture, John Sr. says that Christian culture is just the mass and everything that grows up around the mass. Uh, and, I, and I would say that um, um, Christian, I would agree that Christian culture is the mass and classical education is the education that grows up, that naturally grows up around a Eucharistic community. So I think when most people hear about classical education, they're thinking of the building that they would send their child to. So there's an age for it and there's a location for it. The way you're talking about it is bigger than that. Is that correct? Am I hearing that correctly? 
Yes. So then what else is required for, so some pieces of what you're talking about are uh, regular attendance at church. You talk about every day, every Sunday Christians in the essay right. we'll get to. Uh, the, but what else, yeah, what else is required then for this classical education to be possible? Um, for classical education to be possible, you need an old book, a teacher who's read it, and a student who has it. Okay. Uh, I would say that the, the, those three things uh, are absolutely necessary. Um, uh, and, and I don't know that you can get, I wouldn't get much simpler than that. Um, I think that the, that the text or the old book stands for the tradition of human learning um, that, the, that the teacher is uh, presenting and making alive for the student. Um, but yeah, I would say that these three parties and that the text, um, that the text is sort of king, um, and that the, um, the, the teacher has this princely role and is helping the student inhabit the princely role as well. Yeah. You've talked, yeah, you've talked before about that, um, it's a lectern and there's an authority that that teacher brings to it, but it's not even really the teacher. It's the work that is kind of reading into the students, right? That's right. The teacher, the, the text is the sky and the teacher is a finger that points at the sky. Yeah. Well, hearing you talk about it that way of localizing it like that, have you, have you come across David Hicks's article about the possibility of um, classical Christian education? Yeah, or, I have. or heard him talk about it. So he sure. you know, runs through these four pillars and ends the thing by saying that classical Christian education is no longer possible because of kind of a either cultural resistance or just um, there's nothing, there's no um, intentional animate force behind this. It's just culture is opposed to the things that classical education wants to pass along. It, is that an argument that you agree with or does it really come down to just the teacher, the book and the student? Um, it certainly feels like it's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> like most days I come into work, it feels like it's not possible. Sure. Um, so, uh, I, even if you, even if a teacher, this is not exactly answering your question, but I feel like even if you don't agree with Hicks, uh-huh. every teacher before they come into a school should have to write their own argument about why it's not possible. <laughs> like, sure. even if you, sure. even if you don't buy this, right. um, you, you don't really, if, if you're not willing to, or capable of making a case about why it's not possible, right. you don't really understand what you're going up against. And, and I feel like a lot of the people that, so I, um, I don't, I don't actually know if I agree with David Hicks, but I totally respect this position and this argument because yes. I, I, I would prefer to say that I disagree with Hicks in the letter of what he's arguing, right. but entirely agree with the spirit of what he's arguing. Yes. And that, and that the article is really more about um, waking teachers up and waking parents up to exactly how much um, to exactly how much resistance there is to the books that the teacher is trying to teach. Um, and so, like, kind of in the same way, uh, you know, there's there's people out there that say stuff like, "I don't know if I can bring a child into this world." Sure. Like, I disagree with that. Um, I think you can bring a child into this world. But I also think that for every truly contemplative person, you need to pass through a moment where you do seriously doubt whether you can bring a child into this world, because that's just proof that you have taken the world seriously and that you have assessed the problem for just how bad it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say that 
the, the child that supplied into this book teacher student sort of sort of trio uh, has to be somebody who's of or it helps if they're of a certain receptive mind to what the yep. teacher is offering. Um, and, it, you know, of course, the teacher also needs to present the book in such a way that the book has authority and the teacher obeys it and the obedience of the teacher is modeled to the student. And so um, it's not just any book, any teacher and any student are going to make a, a classical education possible. Um, there's a number of, you know, of course, caveats about the spiritual state of all three of these things right. that I would I would want to uh, declare, I guess. Yeah. And there's a there is also a piece of it that is outside of the education that is a more cultural education. Maybe we'll yeah. we'll talk about taste, which is a, a, a fascinating section in what you have recently written about. But also, there's just it seems like there are so many things that work against what a classical education is trying to accomplish, and they aren't morally evil things. They're morally or they're just distracting things. Right. So so is uh, is the sheltering of a student, and if you want to disagree with that word, also a part of classical education? Or is that something different? Um, well, it seems like if we're going to, I mean, if we're going to ask that sort of question, um, you know, we might as well ask what else about the child's life do we need to assume or not assume yeah. uh, the child that's being supplied here? Um, like, do they have a place to sleep at night? Are they well fed? Are they just... Um, <laughs> Are you receiving a child that's hopelessly addicted to drugs every day that they show up and they can't actually pay attention? So, I mean, there's all sorts of um, there's all sorts of difficulties that are going to that are going to keep the child from actually receiving what you what you have to offer them. Yeah. Um, sorry, what's the? I think I lost the question. No, my question asked. was: Is there more? Um, my question was around the sheltering. So, an idea that's right. come up in your writing a number of times right. is around smartphones, around video games, around kind of right. things that are distracting of depth of um, making oneself better. Just is right. that a, is that also a piece of classical education? Um, it, I it, yes and no. Um, it uh, if we're talking about actual classrooms, I don't know that there's oh. any way of cutting all, all of that stuff out. Right. Um, but at the same time, I do want to say. Uh, you know, sort of in reference to what I what I put forward earlier, um, which is that human beings have long memories, and it's possible to communicate to some, uh, you know, TikTok star or video game junkie uh, some fundamental truth that they're entirely resistant to, and yet it sinks down deep into their memory and lays dormant like a cicada for 17 years and then comes to life a long time later and starts making all this noise and all this activity in their heart. Um, so I, I think uh, because we can't write any student off forever and human beings are capable of um, surprise and, and sudden change and, and all the rest, um, I think it's still, I think it's still worth it to, to try to educate everyone in the classroom and hope that something sticks, even in the minds of students that are entirely hostile and entirely resistant and hope that, um, you know, hope that this might seem like a tried invocation of scripture, but that God will give the increase that you plant the seed and it sits there for a long time. And that God works with your faithful teaching in mysterious ways, many years later in ways that you couldn't have possibly predicted. So let's follow that idea through then to your newest essay, 
and I'm going to get the title correct this time. So your parents are thinking of sending you to a classical Christian school. That's I think it. I got it. Yeah. Okay. My favorite thing is that when you when you email the pamphlet, you just call it "So Your Parents" in the title, and I assume that's for limits to the subject line, which I, I just thought that was very funny. Uh, <laughs> but so you know, we 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 spend the time going through the essay. We get to the end of it. Graham's first question at the end: Is this essay primarily about providing a filtering function for the classical school? So I said yes at the end. I'm curious: Would you agree that that's a primary function of the essay? Yeah, this is a, a gatekeeping tool. Left, right, front, back, and center. So then let's go with taking that first point of, I think any student would benefit from a classical education, be that by your definition, homeschool counts under that. Um, anything sure. that involves uh, private school would count for that. But if anyone would benefit from exposure to that classical education, do you have any, do you have any worries about providing a filtering function where some people are going to say, I don't agree with this, therefore I won't go? Therefore, they'll miss out. Uh, no, I, the fact that the fact that everyone will gain from it doesn't mean that everyone will gain from it equally. Sure. Um, and I and I think that uh, Christ of Ministry provides numerous examples of his unwillingness to deal with skeptics and cynics who were not approaching him with purity and simplicity of heart. Uh, Christ was not um, Christ was not one who was willing to tailor his message to an easily digestible form for absolutely everyone who came to him. In fact, he even conveys his message in ways that he knows will defy the expectations and frustrate certain of his crowds. Um, but but if you were to ask, are the Pharisees better off hearing the words of Christ? They're like, yeah, no telling what the words of Christ will do to them or for them in the long run. And before the New Testament is over, you've got you've got a former Pharisee becoming one of the greatest apostles. So it, it's possible for, for the words of Christ to have this sort of long-term effect. And, and so I think that um, it might be the case that everybody who shows up at the classical school um, would be better off getting a classical education than going to a public school. That fact alone doesn't mean that you need to let everyone in because you also have to worry about what you can offer all of the all of the faithful apostles and disciples that you have in class. Um, and it's it's often the case that um, students that are hostile to a classical education end up having far more influence over student culture than obedient students do. I would say that for the average classical Christian school, the um, the three percent, uh, the, the most worldly three percent of the student body, has about 70% of the influence <laughs> over the student body. Sure. Uh, and, if you know, if you're, um, I'm sure you know, you've heard the quote before, I pay the schoolmaster, but yep. it's the school boys who educate my son. Yep. And, and so for that reason, um, uh, I think you've got to be as careful about who you let into the school to be a student as you do about who's the teacher. Yeah. And if you wouldn't just let any old body teach um, teach the enlightenment. Up, you can't exactly, just yes. right. You can't just let any old buddy sit in the student's <laughs> desk because they're going to end up doing some teaching too. Yeah, we got a, a great email from a listener who works at a smaller classical school uh, in a more rural setting, uh, and their comment was, "You'll have there are certain cities or towns where you just don't have enough people, and so for there to be a classical school there requires some lowering of whatever that threshold is." I wonder if you have thoughts on that. Do you accept the the premise of that idea, um, or 
Or would you say you're primarily writing to a larger school that has a wait list or kind of needs a filtering? Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm merely writing to large schools. Um, I would say uh, a sort of uncomfortable truth on this on this question of um, small schools and standards uh, as, a, as a quotation that I picked up from Andrew Kern about nine years ago, which is a classical school has to be willing to die. Hmm. Uh, a classical school has to be willing to say, um, we're not going to, there are certain things we're not going to do to stay alive. Hmm. And it would be better for us to close our doors with integrity than to keep them open dishonestly. Uh, I, I'm not going to claim to know exactly where that point is. Um, but if you're the sort of school where, uh, where like there's no book in the curriculum that's more than 150 years old um, and you don't teach any subject, which isn't immediately acceptable to the spirit of the age, you can't claim to be classical because you've got some pole parrot poetic stylings right. to your scope and sequence. That's right. um, you are being dishonest. You are not a classical school. You wish you were. You wish you had the guts to be a classical school. You wish you had the I don't know, constituents to be one, but you're just not. Yeah, yeah. We haven't even brought it up, but the Dorothy Sayers definition of um, pedagogy hasn't didn't enter your definition of what it is to be classical. Um, I wonder if you have thoughts then, does that then mean that Dorothy Sayers has nothing to say about how a classical school should look, or is it just the two are unrelated? Um, I don't think that Dorothy Sayers has nothing to say. Dorothy yeah. Sayers is one of, the, one of the great literary critics of the 20th century, uh, and she understood the medieval mindset better than almost anyone else in the 20th century, maybe I don't know, Lewis and Peter Brown accepted. Um, but... Uh, but oh, I think this is a I don't know that this is all that controversial anymore. I think that Dorothy Sayers has been dramatically overplayed in classical circles yes, sure. um, and that uh, that Dorothy Sayers uh, Dorothy Sayers had about three dollars worth of knowledge to contribute to the classical conversation. And people like to pretend that she's this, uh, you know, this Powerball ticket. Yes. Um, this winning Powerball ticket of an intellect. Yeah. Um, I think that Dorothy Sayers got a few things completely wrong. I think that she completely misunderstood middle school mm. and the sort of advice that she gives on middle school students is as backward as it gets. Teaching, uh, though I like the logic. Yeah. On teaching logic and argumentation to middle schoolers. Yeah. Uh, I like the, the, the idea of, I, I just simply think that she misread human nature and that the goal of constructing an education that's based around human nature is good. Yeah. And, that, and that the fact that little kids love to memorize stuff. So give them stuff to memorize brilliant. Uh, and by the time you're 17 or 18, you have all these feelings and you need an outlet for them. And so you teach kids poetry. Brilliant. Uh, the whole idea that middle schoolers love to argue, so you teach them to argue. Uh -huh. That's nuts. Like <laughs> <laughs> Middle schoolers love to argue, so you teach them to be silent. Okay. That's, that's what you do with middle schoolers. Um, so uh, I, I think that Dorothy Sayers has some very important things that she's contributed. I'm very glad that she existed. I'm glad, very glad that she wrote about classical education. I'm glad that Doug Wilson read Dorothy Sayers. I'm glad that Doug Wilson wrote his book. But uh, at the same time, there's a whole lot more out there on classical education that, that anyone reading Dorothy Sayers needs to, to also read. Do you have any, like, what would you point to as something that people should look at either instead of or in addition to Lost Tools of Learning? 
Well, it depends on. Um, oh, sure. Uh, great question. Great question. Uh, but I think it entirely depends on whether you you want to think of this in terms of primary sources or secondary sources. Yes. Um, so, so primary source should be the right answer, right? Go read the classics. Well, yeah, and, and but I think that there are certain books that you read on the subject of education that are very helpful on education, but you may not think of them. You may not think of those books as theories on education. So, I, I think Divine Comedy is a theory of education. I think there's a lot to learn about education from the Divine Comedy. I think you could you could probably write uh, you could probably write a great book on well, not a great you could write a you could write a great work commentary on running a classical school. It's nothing but meditations on how education works in the Divine Comedy. Sure. Um, I think that, uh, you know, a sort of discursive style is well suited, um, that if you're going to teach in a discursive style and you need an education on that, you can read the Constellation of Philosophy, you can read, you know, Plato's Dialogues and all that. Um, if, if we're talking about secondary sources on classical education, oh, man. Uh, obviously, uh, the answer is how to be unlucky. How to be unlucky is this the right is, answer. <laughs> um, if I'm, yeah, I, uh, I'm going to go with liberal arts tradition by Clark and Jane. Sure. Um, but but I'm going to acknowledge that that's a highly academic book that you can't give to a parent. Right. Um, I don't even know that that's the book that you can give to somebody in their late teens or early twenties. Um, uh, liberal arts tradition by Clark and Jane is is a brilliant book. But that's inside baseball right, right there. Like that's that's for people that already drank the Kool-Aid and they're like 10 years into their career. It's not an introduction. Sure. And, um, uh, you know, Recovering Lost Tools of Learning was great when it came out. Really, somebody needs to write the sequel to Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning. Sure. And no one's written that book and no one, I don't even know that anyone's tried. Yeah, I can't, nothing comes to mind for who's trying for that. Um, yeah, I, I was joking before. I do think how to be unlucky and um, something they will not forget. Get at something they will not forget specifically is how to teach this classically this classic style in the classroom um, and around getting to what's important. So I do. Yeah. I think those would be. I tried in yeah. the running. Yes, of course. <laughs> yes, good. <laughs> if you won't promote your book, I will. I'm happy to do it. Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> but, uh, but to take it back then to. The, the newest essay, so your parents are thinking of sending you to a classical Christian school. Um, the, the, the piece of the essay, so you, you run through these four things that will probably surprise a student if they just show up to a classical school and don't know about them ahead of time. And the last one of them is around good taste or the importance yes. of, of taste at a school. Um, th- when that came up in our discussion, the first reaction was, oh, I wish we had a taste class. I don't yeah. think that's what you mean by taste, or maybe it is. I'm just curious, how, how is that taught? How is that conveyed to students through the classical school? Is it a specific class? Is it time around teachers? Is it something else? Oh, um, you mean do we have like the finer things club like they have in the office? We literally right? have – Veritas literally has one of those. I want you to know, and I'm very proud of that's that. That's awesome. It's so Okay, so, so – uh, the answer to the question is like, yes, all of these things. Okay, so okay. I taught for a number of years, um, an aesthetics class, uh, that ended up turning into a cooking class. Hmm. Um, and we read, um, you know, we read portions of very short introduction to beauty by Roger Scruton, Supper of the Lamb, What is Art by Leo Tolstoy. And it was like this, this little body of, uh, aesthetic theories and, and, um, theories of beauty and uh, I live on the campus of my school, and so we would go over to my house, and we would uh, it was sort of a cooking class at the same time while we're reading Supper of the Lamb. 
Um, and then it was also a bit of an art history class. It was kind of, it was like just my favorite things all kind of thrown together in a class. So I, I, I think that every school ought to have something like that. No one ever took this class though. Right. Like, <laughs> really? Everyone, That's everyone surprising. wanted to take choir. Um, uh, but, <laughs> you um, I tried. I gave, I, I gave it my best. I taught this elective for like four years. And like last year, there was only three people and one of them never came. And I was like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, will you save the city for three righteous? Yes. Um, but I don't, I don't think that this is merely like a discrete class. I don't think that it's yes. merely like a cooking class. I think this is also the way that you introduce classic literature. Yes. And that there are certain guarantees that you can make about classic classical literature, certain promises you can make about books that last and music that lasts and, and artwork that lasts and, and all the rest of it that you can't make about other things. Yeah. And that it's worth it to tell students, good things are hard to like, pleasant things are easy to like, good things and pleasant things are not always the same. Yeah. And there are, I appreciate the conversation that you had towards the end of last episode, um, where it was acknowledged that there is sort of this fast food reality to absolutely yeah. everything. There's fast food movies and fast food poetry and fast food ideas and fast food theology and fast food worship and fast food everything. Right. Um, and this is a sort of cheap, easy, greasy, sold in the middle of the night out the drive through window sort of reality yeah. that most students grow up in where absolutely nothing that they see or hear or read is worth going back to. And that's the really awful thing about like scrolling media is that you're literally throwing your life into a black pit that you never need to revisit. Like, it's not like, I mean, I'm, I don't know, finishing my 19th reading of the divine comedy, still good. 19 reads later. Whereas I mean, um, like there's, there's plenty of contemporary novels that I enjoy reading once or twice, but uh, I'm not going to read my year of rest and relaxation 19 times, like once or twice was good enough. And that's it. You know, that's a decent novel, let alone all of the sort of mediocre paperback novels where you never need to go back to them a second time. Like you wrung that stone dry the first time you read it, the first time you watched it. Um, but but explaining this to students and like, I think a lot of, I think there's a temptation for a lot of teachers to oversell what you're doing. Like, oh, the divine comedy. It's so great. It's so wonderful. You'll absolutely love it. It's thrilling. All of these terrible things happen in hell. It's so gross. Right. You're going to love it. Like, no, not really. I mean, it's a difficult <laughs> book. It's it slow. Yes. And if you're reading Dorothy Sayers' translation, it sounds all wacky. Uh, there's all but sorts hers, of references to. Doesn't hers rhyme? Isn't that the charm of hers? That's the, yeah, charm in quotation marks. There's a <laughs> lot of, uh, man, uh, to read John Senior talk about Dorothy Sayers' translation, uh, have you have you read the Restoration of Christian Culture by I have not no. by John Senior? Oh man, does he have a section uh, in there on Sayers? Oh, it's a savage critique <laughs> of the um, of the translation of Divine Comedy. Okay, um, but but comedy is different. Like you could read Mark Meese's translation; it's still very difficult. And so, like telling students, like this is like Transformers, but better. <laughs> Right. Like, I feel like there's a lot of people that try to sell the Divine Comedy or Paradise Lost along those grounds. Like, you you thought Friday the 13th was exciting. <laughs> Wait till you get to the Inferno. Like, right. no, 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 sure. no, 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 no. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a different sort of thing. Yeah. But um, I, I think that you've got to explain this to students. Like, okay, I know that this is a big buzzword and I feel bad for using it, but I think the teachers need to be a lot more transparent with their mm-hmm. students about what exactly to expect of the literature. And, and I don't like teachers who hide methods that they're applying to their students and yeah. have this 
these secret ways of selling things to students that students never pick up on. I try to make absolutely everything clear to my students, everything plain. Like when I, like I whine about my students' parents in front of them. Like your parents <laughs> keep doing this and it bugs me. Right. Don't have your parents do this. Don't have them email me. I don't want to hear about your workload. I don't want to hear about this. I don't want to hear. And, and, and I don't, I don't hide anything from them. Sure. Um, because I, I I don't hide anything from them, but I try to be as open with them as I can. And I try to be open with them about how difficult the books are that they're yeah. going to read as well. But then does that mean that you're opening? Do you read the entire comedy? Do you read all three parts? Um, we move through all of it. Canto by canto. There are, uh, there are a few cantos where we only read the summaries up front and we okay. don't read, uh, you know, we read the abstract, but not the actual text itself. I'm just wondering then. So like as a, Maybe maybe you don't give them any context before going into it, but do you tell them that this will be a difficult work? Do you tell them you'll probably be bored by the Paradiso? Like, what is the honest way of approaching those works? Like, what's the thing yeah, to tell so, the students? Well, um, I, I tell them, uh, and this is sort of a, a kind of canned speech that I give a couple times every year. Um, I tell them, uh, your mind is going to wonder while we read this. And that's... Yeah. Um, there's nothing, that's not a sin. It's not unbelievable that it would happen. It's not a sign that there's something wrong. Um, so when your mind wanders, it's more important that you recognize that your mind is wandering and bring it back to the yeah. text. And so the longer you spend in books like this, the easier it becomes to control your thought. But yeah, I mean, I get, I get, I get bored when I have to do things people are forcing me to do all the time. Yes. And my mind wanders and I go to something more interesting. Um, so, so I think that acknowledging to students that your mind is going to wonder because this is going to be difficult to understand, it's just one of those sort of boilerplate beginning week of the school year sort of lectures yes. um, where, where you're not going to pretend with your students that they are naturally, inherently, easily interested in all of this. Sure. And you say, uh, like, not only are we going to learn the content here, but we're going to learn how to, uh, what do I want to say? We learn how to how to get at this content, and like even getting at it is quite difficult. Like training your mind um, to be receptive to it and to come back to it when your mind wanders. Like all of this is going to take some practice. So I th I think that's a that's a standard lit teacher week one sort of sort of speech. Um, you've talked before about how students can understand the consolation of philosophy, at least the earlier parts, before it gets weird and metaphysical at the end. Right. Do they have that experience with the Purgatorio also? of being um, able to understand what Dante's doing? No, my okay. students don't. Um, I, I would trust, uh, I mean, I would trust somebody who is only 14 or 15 years old um, to read about the first two thirds of the constellation yeah. uh, and to understand a good portion of it, whether you liked it or right. not. Yeah. Um, whereas I, I think some of the most important cantos of the Purgatorio one, four, nine, 18, 30, 31. Uh, I would never send students home to read those on their own and sure. figure it out on their own. I mean, those are, those are so difficult, even if they're important. I was going to say later ones. I don't know if 30 or 31 is where it turns into pure allegory. It's, it's fascinating to read, but it's also, I needed, I read the Esalen translation. I needed okay. his notes at the back to tell me what is going on and what is this. Right. Yeah, the pageants that he sees, yes. the 24 elders and the candlesticks and all that. Yeah, sure. um, so maybe th th this will kind of be a last question around the new essay, and then we'll do a little wrap up at the end. Um, yeah. We had a, um, we've gotten this pushback before, and 
we got it recently in talking about your essay. Um, uh, you write, um, you don't have to spend much time in a classical Christian school. Do you hate it when people quote things to you that you wrote? Is that weird? No, I don't. I don't hate it. I get nervous because I, I'm worried <laughs> that I said something really stupid. No, you said something great. I think I think it's great. Uh, and I think we quoted this in there too. You don't have to okay. spend much time in a classical Christian school before you hear someone mention truth, goodness, and beauty. This is because classical Christian teachers believe that pursuing truth, goodness, and beauty is how you keep from flunking life. Later on, earlier I said that classical Christian school teachers believe that pursuing truth, goodness, and beauty is what keeps a person from flunking life. It might be better to say that learning to love truth, goodness, and beauty is what makes a person's life true, good, and beautiful. The, the feedback we often get is that if you were to go back – 70, I'm sure you've heard this before. You go back 70 mm. years, and essentially everyone who is well-educated is classically educated. But, and maybe, you, again, you can disagree with the premise, but that's usually the way this question comes to us. Okay. Well, we still had problems before 1940, pick your cutoff year. So then sure. was, um, do we say that they weren't truly classically educated? Do we say that, like, how? There seems to be some contradiction there of we didn't eradicate all our problems by getting education perfectly right. So then does the pursuit of the true, good, and beautiful actually make us virtuous? Does it actually make us true, good, and beautiful? Okay. So I think that the, the question is sort of born out of this certain belief about the possibility of changing the world. And it's about this consideration of the world. Um, and... Uh, I, I think whenever you start talking about changing the world, you start, when you go down, when you start down the track, you've, you've got to remember all of the, all of the biblical cautions about the world. Um, and that the sort of cautions that Christ gives about the world, uh, the world hated me, they're going to hate you too. Um, Christ says that knowing what the next 2000 years of human history are going to look like. Man is born into born into trouble as the sparks fly up. That's not something that was true only in Job's day. I mean, that's just a constant in human history. Sure. Uh, all of the cautions about what a wretched place the world are that we get in Ecclesiastes um, are, are true back when Solomon said them 27, 2800 years ago, and, and they're true now. And they were true during the Middle Ages. Um, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you too, is a statement that the church has been reading and believing in the time of Julian the Apostate, in the time of Constantine, in the time of Theodosius, uh, when the first caliphate is overtaking all the Christian space around the Mediterranean. It's true during um, the Great Schism. It's true during the Renaissance or Reformation. Like these, these claims about the world as uh, like a difficult and sort of, sort of painful place to be um, are true, whether we have classical education or not. So there's, there's no biblical claim about how difficult the world is that classical education is going to make go away. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that this is about, I wouldn't say that classical education is about uh, restoring some sort of golden age. I don't think that there's some golden age in human history that we're trying to get back to. So there, I mean, there's plenty of, I mean, there's plenty of conservatives and Republicans who, who live in some sort of fantasy world where it's like everything was great in the 1950s. <laughs> no, right. it's sure. crazy. Right. Man was born into trouble in the 1950s as the sparks fly upward, just as he is now. Yeah. Um, but, but uh, you know, a, a, a thing I often say is that classical education is not about the, the um, it's not about returning to some golden age. It's about the preservation of golden things. It's about custody. It's about taking care of golden things. Uh, and, and these things have to be taken care of because the world's a wretched place and it's going to want to try to destroy good things. Yeah. And so it's a responsibility of people who love goodness and truth and beauty to be 
be the, the carriers of the fire, like to make a Cormac McCarthy reference to her, uh, that even when the world is falling apart, you've got to carry the fire. That, that it's not about, uh, it's not about worship of some sort of ideal that was inhabited in the past. Um, it's about, it's about these manifestations of a higher, better world that occasionally break through in this world. Yeah. And when we find them, we've got to hold on to them with all of our might. I think that's what classical education is about. So yeah, you rewind the tapes of history back to the 50s or 40s. Right. You're going to find people stealing and killing and destroying and raping and pillaging and ripping each other off. And that's true whether people have a classical education or not. I mean, there's a patron saint of prostitutes for crying out loud. That's how awful a place the world is. Yeah. And, and that's back when, um, you know, the patron saint of prostitutes originates from a time when uh, the Christian vision of the world was dominant in the West. Right. Um, so, so how much more now that that's been lost? So then if classical education were to become more widespread, would you not expect any change in, uh, I guess, would, would the world not look any different is maybe one way to pose the question. No, wow. it wouldn't. Okay. Um, I, um, whether the world, I do not think in terms of changing the world. I do not think in terms of having an impact on the world. I don't think in terms of having an impact on a culture. Um, I don't like, I don't like people who reduce classical education to a means of gaining leverage over society and moving society in sure. a better direction. Um, he who saves one life saves the world entire. That's classical education right there. Yeah. Um, which means that if you reach one student in a class of 20, uh, if you reach one class, one student in five sections, um, that's, that's your whole year. That's your life. Your life is, your life is bound up in this one person that you could do some good. And if, um, and if the world ends up changing or it doesn't, that's, that's really not my concern and I'm not expecting it. And I, and I should, I should add that I think as soon as you start thinking, that classical education is going to make things better. The temptation to shortcut and try to seize on these better things that you think it's going to lead to is just unavoidable. And that's what turns classical education into a movement that's primarily about dollars and cents and figures and rising and falling enrollment numbers. And that's, uh, that's just the way the world thinks. Sure. It, yeah, it makes me think of Joseph Pieper when he's writing about leisure and says that leisure can't be for any other thing because if it's for something else, then you'll twist and turn it to get at what you actually want. So if what you want is to change the world, classical education becomes a tool that's and right. you'll cut out the hard parts. I mean, that's what you're saying. Yeah. But you would say that that the individual student's life should be different 10 years out for having gone to the classical school, correct? If the classical, if the student receives what has been offered. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yes, I do. And that would look like a husband loving his wife, raising happy children, um, yeah. maybe not wealthy, but perhaps enjoying their work. So there are things that would be different, but they're smaller scale, I guess. Is that the way to put it? Yeah. I, okay. And I, when I say that, I don't think classical education is going to change the world. I don't mean it's not going to do anybody any good. That's what I mean. Um, so, so, I, so I do believe that a person is better off receiving a good education than not, um, and that receiving a good education will have um, will have a very f- a fine and edifying effect on, on a person's life yeah. uh, to some extent in the short run and and definitely in the long run. Perfect. 
All right, let me move toward wrapping up. Um, there's so much of your work that we haven't had a chance to cover, so I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about a few things. Um, yeah. First off, gibbsclassical.com, is that the best place for people to go to get updates on everything that you're working on? It is. Gibbsclassical.com has a mailing list, and I send out information on new work, new classes and videos and webinars that I do yeah. there. Um, yeah, that's a, that's the best hub for reaching me and finding out what I'm doing. Yeah. And depending on when this comes out, it'll either be a week or two weeks away from the end of early bird pricing for the Gibbs Classical Online Summer Conference. Do you want to talk a little bit about what people can expect, who the conference is for? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So the Gibbs Classical Online Summer Conference is July 8th and 9th. Uh, It's on Zoom. There are, um, you can register on gibbsclassical.com. Uh, it's eight lectures and two Q&A sessions over the course of two days on a variety of subjects, many of which are geared towards high school teachers, some of which are geared towards parents and administrators, too. Um, so there's a bit of a I'm, I'm trying to cast a bit of a broad net. Um, even the even the lectures that are really meant more for teachers, I think administrators would benefit from hearing. Uh, and it's on a range of it's on a range of what I think of as, as practical subjects. So so the video that I have posted on my website, I, I, I say um, that I've been to a lot of conferences in my life and I've heard a lot of inspiring lectures at conferences that I can't remember two weeks later. <laughs> yes. And this is not that sort of conference. So my goal is to make this conference like immensely useful. I, I want to give the sort of lectures where like two months later, you still remember a good portion of what was said. Yes. You're given some practical things to do, some tools by which you can, by which you can govern your classroom and bless your students. Um, and bless your employees if you're an administrator, um, not just a sort of sort of generic like our work is very hard, but we must press <laughs> on, my brothers. Which is like a lot of what, oh, what a lot of the talks are. Yes, <laughs> a lot of conferences turn into this. Um, teachers of the world, Christ you, you know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, so, I, so I wanted it to be very practical, uh, and I and I also wanted to be useful in the long run. So. Um, uh, all of the lectures that I'm giving are going to be written out word for word. And if you sign up for the conference, I'm going to give you this huge PDF of like 50,000 words of all the lectures that, that are included in the conference. Um, like you will have not only the ability to download all of the videos of the sessions, but you will have word for word transcripts of absolutely everything. And then discussion guides uh, for each of the lectures for implementing these ideas at your school. Sure. That's perfect. And I, I want to say, I think there are discounts based on the number of uh, tickets that you buy also. So if you're looking to send lots. That's right. So if you want to send lots. That's right. Everyone should want to send lots of people is what I'm trying to say. So you can find that at gibbsclassical.com as well. Uh, we have barely, uh, we, I think we might have mentioned it once, we barely mentioned your podcast, Proverbial, which is excellent. We uh, Josh Gibbs also has a regular column on the Cersei Institute called The Cedar Room, which I found out is a song. It's from, is it The Doves? Is that the? It's by Doves, yeah. Doves, yeah. Off I, of, I, uh, yeah, off of Lost Souls. I, I, I just found that out yesterday. It's a great song. My first time yeah, listening to it, it was also yesterday for the record. But, oh, cool. <laughs> uh, and also we've barely referenced that uh, uh, Josh Gibbs has an upcoming book called Love What Lasts. Do we know at this point when it's coming out? Um, no, we're just waiting on the fellow who agreed to write the foreword to write the yeah. foreword on it. I heard you reference that recently. Does that mean it's like a big deal person writing the introduction or writing the preface? Uh, uh, I, I, I think he's a big deal. Good. Okay, great. I'm, yeah. I'm, look, I'm looking forward to it. And obviously, <laughs> he's, 
Yeah, he's a hero of mine. So Good. Wow. See, that, things like that get me excited. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, and of course, we'll look forward to covering that on the podcast as well. Um, but anyway, there are lots of other things we could have talked about with Josh Gibbs. You should go to Gibbs Classical to sign up for his updates there and to see all the other things that he's involved with. But we would be here for many, many days if we went through that. So I'll go ahead and wrap it up there. Josh Gibbs, thank you for coming on the podcast. And um, yeah, just want to say thank you so much for all the work that you do. Absolutely. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. 